Amen. Praise the Lord. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 12. Never thought you'd hear that number, did you? Uh, we've been in the book of Hebrews for a long time. We were in chapter 11 for a long time. Uh, tonight we want to uh, get into chapter 12 and, and basically the first half of the chapter is what we're planning to cover tonight. Um, but uh, in order to do that, we're going to have to lay some uh, groundwork and remind you of where we were because we spent so much time in chapter 11. Remember that, uh, that this is a letter written to the Jewish believers. Uh, we believe Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews. And as such, he's building a case little by little, point by point. And uh, chapter 12 is really based on chapter 10. Remember a long, long, long time ago when we were in chapter 10? Well, I'm going to remind you of a couple of verses there in chapter 10 and, and uh, what he was talking about to them that, uh, that got him speaking about the hero, what we know of as the heroes of faith in chapter 11. He's uh, admonishing them because of some of the mistakes that they've made. He speaks to them in chapter 10 and verse 23 it is. He says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Many of them have turned their back on, on confessing Jesus as the only way to God because they've gone back to Judaism. He goes on even further and speaks in the next several verses about those that have turned their back on the faith and, uh, and as a result lost their salvation. Now, things are different in our day than they were in, in the day that Paul wrote this, certainly. Um, Christians were willing to turn their back on Christianity to go with the crowd toward Judaism. Today, it's a different thing. Today, it's popular in some circles to just put the mixed Christianity in with a bunch of other stuff and say, well, there's many ways to God. Well, that's the most dangerous thing in the world for somebody that was ever saved and, and filled with the Holy Ghost. Because if somebody ever really comes to that place, whether it's through the influence of others or, or whatever the case is, if they ever come to that place where they uh, say from their heart, that Jesus isn't the only way to God, then they've lost their, their place in, in God's family. And that, I can't think of anything more serious than that condition. Can you? Well, Paul's making that point. And as a result, a lot of the people that are reading this letter know of friends, family members, loved ones perhaps, that have done exactly that. Many of them may have gotten on the edge of it themselves. Maybe they've even gone along with the thing, but, but it wasn't necessarily from the heart. Now, I'm glad that we don't uh, have the opportunity to judge somebody's heart on whether they, what they say is really from within because of a conviction or if they're just going along with what other people say. I'm sure there are a lot of people that have said the wrong things and, uh, and turned their back on the Lord with their words, but since it wasn't from their heart, God, thank God he looks on the heart. Amen. So Paul is making those uh, those points, and he goes on in chapter 10 and verse 32, and he says, Now call to remembrance the former days. That means the beginning of the what we know of as the beginning of the church, the, the first uh, chapters of the book of Acts, where there was a great outpouring of the Holy Ghost. There was a great move of the Spirit of God. Signs and wonders and miracles were taking place, and then persecution arose. So he said, But call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, born again in other words, you endured a, va- a great fight of afflictions. In other words, you guys used to be strong. You're not anymore. That's the point that he's making. Remember when you were strong. Remember when you didn't let trouble turn you away from the things of God. Remember when you didn't let hardships and difficulties turn you away from what you knew was true. And that's why he goes into the, the, the whole thing of chapter 11 based on verse, uh, what is it, verse 38. He says, now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Chapter 11 is all about those that live by faith. He gives example after example of people that they know, people that are part of their history, their Jewish history. The reason he uses Jewish history rather than New Testament examples, people like Philip, who they would have known as well. Uh, I'm sorry, not Philip, Stephen, who was stoned for his belief. In Jesus, because he uses the things that the Judaizers would be pointing back to. They're all about Moses. They're all about Abraham. So he talks about Abraham and Moses. And he goes through dispensation after dispensation. And he points out very clearly, God's never changed. There's always been one and only one way to approach God, and that's by faith. There's always been one and only one way to please God, and that's by faith. God hasn't changed. Time periods have changed. Men have changed in the way that we approach and deal with one another. But as far as God is concerned, he's never changed from the beginning. It's always been about faith. And that's what the examples in chapter 11 are about, one right after another. Now chapter 12. After he finishes this list 
of all those that have walked by faith and, and says that he can't, he's running out of time. He can't tell of others that he could use for examples too. He says in chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, he says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which does so easily beset us and run with patience the race that is set before us. In other words, he's saying these examples should be something that inspire us. These guys, this list of people that I've given you and all the others that you know of that I could have given you but I didn't, didn't have time for. He said these are people that should inspire you to get back in the race. Turn away from the Judaism, uh, the, the teaching of the Judaizers, back, going back to the law of Moses. Turn away from those things and go back to what you started with, which was Jesus and Jesus alone. There's two, two aspects of the things we want to talk about tonight. The first is, the first point that Paul wants to, makes to them is get back in the race. The second point that starts about verse 5 through about verse 13, I think we'll get through tonight, um, is uh, about the discipline of the Lord. So let me read the first four verses and then we'll talk about some of those things and then we'll, we'll take the second part. Wherefore, seeing we also are accomplished about with such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which does so easily beset us and run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. You have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. Now, folks, the summary, the overview of this is, look at Jesus and what he put up with, and you guys are willing to quit? Seeing that you've got these examples of others that went before you that lived by faith under adverse circumstances, many times they were living, uh, standing all alone, didn't have anybody to encourage them or support them or whatever. These guys who continued to live by faith and perform these acts of faith when it was just them and God. And in, in addition to that, look at Jesus, the contradiction that he had, the hardships, the difficulties, the attacks that he endured by sinners. And yet he stood strong and you're thinking about giving up. You see the point that he's making? Now, there's something that's very interesting for us that, um, um, well, I don't know exactly how to say this. I know Paul intended this, I know the Holy Ghost intended this, but I don't know if the Jews got it. Because it's real easy to overlook. Because where he says, wherefore, seeing we are encompassed about with uh, such a great cloud of witnesses, what is it about these witnesses that they're supposed to get? I mean, were these just stories? They already knew the stories. They already knew about Abraham, they already knew about Isaac, they already knew about Jacob, they already knew about Joseph and Moses and David, they already knew about Samson and Gideon and those guys. They they already knew about everybody that he mentioned, they already knew about the group of people that he didn't even specify, like the prophets. They could tell the story about the prophets as well as Paul could. They're a part of their history. So why does he talk about this cloud of witnesses? What is it about this cloud of witnesses that he's talking about that's so important that they're supposed to use as an inspiration? Folks, there's one outstanding characteristic about everybody that he mentions in chapter 11, and that is they all messed up. Every one of them messed up. Every one of them made a mistake somewhere along the way. And remember Paul's overview. What he's trying to get them to do is get back in the race. In other words, don't let making a mistake make you think that you are a mistake. Don't let having a failure make you a failure. Get back in the race. In every case, with these guys that he mentions, their mistakes didn't hold them back from the plan of God for their lives. They came back stronger and better and even more useful to God afterwards. Now, don't get me wrong. Some people will go too far with this, in my opinion. And they'll say, well, you can't minister effectively to to, to people unless you've experienced what they've experienced. I think that's hogwash. I don't have to have a divorce to minister to people that are divorced. I don't have to be sick to minister to the sick. I don't think that's true at all. But one thing I do know, I know that when human bones are broken, they grow back stronger than they were before. And that's the principle spiritually that is shown by the heroes of faith in chapter 11. It's easy for us to just look at the successes. But every one of those guys that had these great successes had a great failure in their lives too. Sometimes more than one. So that's the cloud of witnesses he's talking about. He's saying they made mistakes and they picked themselves up and they got back in the race. You do the same thing. Wherefore, seeing we are encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight 
and the sin which does so easily beset us. Notice he's talking about weights and sins. They're not the same thing. Or weight and sin, singular, not plural. Weight and sin. Weights are distractions. You remember in the parable of the sower sowing the word in Mark chapter 4? Jesus is explaining to his disciples what this parable means. And he talks about the thorny ground. He says the thorny ground are those who allow the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the lust of other things to enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. You remember? That's Mark chapter 4, about verse 19, somewhere around there. Well, what's he saying? He's saying that some of those things cause the word to be unfruitful, but not all three of those things are sins. Cares of this world are not sins. They're things that you and I might legitimately be concerned about and maybe have a good reason to be concerned. But yet the Bible tells us to give all, cast the care of our, cast the whole of our care over on the Lord. So you can take things that are legitimate, that are, that are part of life, and you can let them be weights to you because you don't appropriate the word of God in that situation or in that area. Do you see what I'm saying? There was a, um, uh, when I was in high school, when, uh, um, when you were in an off-season sport, they made you play another sport. They wouldn't let you just lay out. And so football players had to run track. They either had to play baseball or run track in the off-season. Well, most of them weren't too coordinated, so they didn't play baseball, so they, they ran track. Well, um, I was in between seasons, between uh, basketball and baseball, and so the coach made me run track with them as well, as well uh, along with the, the guys, for a couple of weeks. Well, there were a couple of guys that uh, that were on the, the football team, on the track squad, you know, just trying to stay in shape, whatever the coach wanted them to do. And uh, and so they put them on the cross-country team because how can you hurt anybody on the cross-country team, you know? And so this cross-country course was off school grounds. The school didn't have enough property for the for the cross-country team to have enough distance to run. So they, they set this course, and you had to run back up through the hills and uh, through the woods, but then it came to a residential area. At the last part of the, the leg, the last leg of the thing. And it was, I don't know, maybe three quarters of a mile through the residential area. Well, one of the football players lived in that residential neighborhood. And so they came up with this plan that every day they would run this course and then stop at the football player's home and raid his refrigerator. And so you had three or four of these guys, you know, that would go and every day they're doing it. Well, there's nothing wrong with soda pop and cookies. That's what they were having every day. But it sure showed up when the track meet came around. Coach didn't know what was going on until the track meet showed up. And then they went out to run cross country and these guys were dying because they were eating cookies and drinking soda pop when they should have been practicing. That's like weights that Paul's talking about. He's talking about distractions. He's talking about things that hinder you. It may not be sins, but they're things that hold you back. So he says, you're going to have to deal with the things, the distractions of life that hold you back spiritually just as much, well as you're going to have to deal with the sin that'll take hold of you. Now, the reason that he uses sin singular rather than sin plural is that every one of us have a specific and certain and unique way that God deals with us that he might not deal with somebody else. In other words, what's a temptation for you may not be a temptation to me at all. Some people are really tempted by drugs and, and alcohol and stuff like that. That is not a temptation for me in the least. So that's not a sin that's going to beset me, but it might be a sin that besets them. But whereas I'm strong in this area and they're weak in that area, they may be strong in another area where I'm weak. That's what he's talking about, the individual sin. He's saying there's something unique about you that the devil knows that he'll set in your path to try to trip you up. That's what you're going to have to guard against in your life more than any other thing. Now, whatever it is for you, you need to know what it is so you can set your guard on it. So, he said, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, folks, he uses an example here, uh, an example that he uses with other letters that he writes, and that is uh, the, the uh, uh, well, really the Olympic Games. He's talking about an athlete that runs in a, in a marathon or runs in some kind of race. And everybody understood that because it was something that was prevalent in the day. The, the Olympic Games were, um, uh, were a part of life back then. They understood what was going on. There were things that were already beginning. And there were, there were Roman uh, games and different things like that. Athletes were, were very highly respected in the Colosseum and, and that type of thing. So he uses something that these people can relate to. And as a result, everybody knows that the, the training and the discipline and the uh, the self-denial that's necessary for an athlete to operate at his, at his peak performance is the thing that he uses as the example for, for reaching your spiritual peak performance. 
And so he says, we need to run with patience. Now, anybody that's been involved in any kind of athletics at all knows that injuries occur. Injuries may set you back, but you can always come back from them. There is a recovery time, but you can always get back in the game. Now, that's what he's talking about. The race isn't one time, one lap around the field. The race is your life. So he's saying, don't let your setbacks keep you out of the game. Don't let your setbacks keep you from getting back in the race. Now, one of the things that, that, that I think the devil uses against everybody is that whenever you mess up, the one, if not the first thing, one of the first things the devil tells you is God can't use you anymore. Have you ever, ever heard anything like that? Well, sure, the devil deals with all of us like that. This is the point that Paul is making. He's saying, well, look at verse 4. Verse 4 is a mystery to a lot of people, but when you understand the context of what Paul's saying, it's very simple. He says, you have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. You know what that means? That means if you're still breathing, God still has a plan for your life. Hello? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, look at what Jesus put up with. Don't even think about quitting. He didn't quit. If he didn't quit, you don't have to quit. You can make it too. You can make it just like these other guys who had failures and bounced back. And if you're still breathing, if you haven't yet resisted under blood, unto blood, striving against sin, if you're still breathing, if you've still got a pulse, then God's still got a plan for you. You're not past him using. So that's what he's talking about. He's talking about get back in the game, get back in the race. Don't let your failures make you a failure. Everybody has failures. Just don't let it make you a failure. How are we going to do that? Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The word author literally means the uh, the cause or the trailblazer. Jesus is the trailblazer for our faith. And he's the finisher or the completer, the finisher. In other words, he's the beginning and the end. He blazed the trail and he shows you how to follow all the way through. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, what kept Jesus going? Who for the joy set before him? endured the cross in other words we're supposed to be followers of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises there should be a goal set in front of us there should be something that we have expectation at least of a joyful end so that it keeps us going now folks there's not too much joy when you know you've messed up is there you lose your joy. As a matter of fact, in, in my opinion, I know that, uh, uh, I know that with some women, you know, after they reach menopause age and stuff like that, they have, uh, they talk about this hormone replacement therapy. You know what I think the most of the sin in the world is for Christians, for backsliders? Joy replacement therapy. Because when people lose the joy of the fellowship with God, they try to replace it with anything and everything else. And nothing can take that place. And that's what he's talking about. Fellowship may be, may have been broken because you messed up. Fellowship may have been broken because you turned your back temporarily, uh, on Jesus and on Christianity and went back into Judaism. But for goodness sakes, don't let it hold you back. Get back up. Get back in the race. That's the point that he's making. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. It's not always going to be fun. There's going to be trouble. There's going to be hardship, despising the shame. But here's the end result. And is set down at the right hand of the, uh, at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. In other words, if you haven't experienced what Jesus experienced, then you can make it. He made it. You can make it too. And that's why he says you haven't resisted yet unto blood, striving against sin. Jesus did. He resisted all the way until it cost him his life. But God's still got a plan for you. Now, verse 5, verses 5 through 13, I'm going to read these together because it's talking about discipline. And this is a, um, Paul knows they know what most Christians don't know today. I don't know any, any other way to say that. Paul doesn't go into some of the detail about things with the Jews because he knows they know. But some of the most basic and simple truths about discipline and the discipline of the Lord, the church seems to have upside down. So as a result, we're going to have to go a little bit further than what Paul did and maybe bring some other scriptures in or talk about some other stuff in, in line with it. But let me read it all as a group, 
And then we'll pick out certain things. I don't know if we'll go through verse by verse or not, but, uh, well, we'll just see. Let's start in verse five. And have you, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, here's what they forgot. My son despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. This word sons is adult sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, in other words, which belongs to everybody, which he will do with everybody, then are you bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits and live? For they, fathers of the flesh, Verily, for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he, the father of spirits, for our own profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. It's tough to be chastened, isn't it? It's tough to be disciplined. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. The word exercise is the, uh, the Greek word that we get gymnasium from. It means a real hard workout. Being disciplined of the Lord is like having a real hard workout. That's the example Paul uses. Wherefore, verse 12, Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but rather let it be healed. Now, some of those these verses of Scripture are, are really difficult for some people, and, and, and it's kind of funny to see what some commentators say about some of these verses because they don't, they're not looking at it in the context of this being a letter that Paul is writing to the church. Now, the first thing we've got to identify is when Paul's telling them about getting back in the game, why does he start talking about the discipline of the Lord? If we can't answer that question, then we're not going to know what he's talking about or why. Why in the world does he shift from look at the people that you can use as an inspiration, look at Jesus himself, don't be weary, don't give up, get back in, run your race with patience, and now let me talk to you about discipline. He's not talking about self-discipline. He's not talking about laying aside weights and sins. He's talking about God disciplining us. Why? Because his letter is a discipline of the Lord. The reason he says this stuff is he's trying to get them to not be discouraged because he's having to discipline them by the Holy Ghost. Now, folks, verse 9 is the key to understanding the discipline of the Lord. Paul knows they know this, and for that reason, he doesn't throw it out up front. He knows they know it. He uses it as a second point. Notice verse 9. He says, furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh. We know that to be natural fathers, which corrected us. And we gave them reverence. Let's stop right there for a minute. How did our natural fathers or fathers of our flesh discipline us? In our flesh. Right? Any of you ever had your natural father discipline you spiritually? You can't do that. It's impossible. There is no natural father that can discipline their child spiritually. Why? Because they're not spiritual fathers. They're natural fathers. So the only way you can discipline your child is in the area that you are a father, which in this case is fathers of the flesh. That's the key that he uses as the contrast with God. He says, therefore, since we gave reverence to our natural fathers who disciplined us in the flesh, shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits and live? If fathers of the flesh can only discipline their children in the flesh, where does the father of spirits, which is God, discipline his children? In the spirit which means God is not bringing punishment through circumstance or sickness or disease or any evil thing like that. Why? Because those are not spiritual things. Hello. That is the basic understanding of the discipline of God. Where does he discipline you? In what area of life does he discipline you? Is it through circumstances, through bringing tragedy to you if you don't do right? Never. Why? Because he's not the father of your flesh. He's not the father of your circumstance. He's the father of your spirit, which means the only way he can discipline you is through the spirit. Not through natural things, not through circumstances, not through uh, your flesh, not through sickness, not through disease, not through anything that some of the church is standing up saying God must be punishing us for some unknown reason. Can't happen. 
Impossible. Cannot happen. Okay, then, if God disciplines you in spirit and only in spirit, what does he use to discipline your spirit? Well, didn't Jesus say the words I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life? Turn with me over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We'll come back and finish up with chapter or the first half of chapter 12 in just a minute. But I want you to see chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. Paul's writing this to Timothy, reminding him of the truth that he already knows. 2 Timothy 3.16, notice he says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. This literally means God breathed. All scripture is God breathed. Now, we may look at it as men who were used by God to write. But Paul said of the things that he wrote, and this includes things that others wrote as well, that it was God breathed. In other words, it's God talking to you. The word of God is God speaking to you. Why? Because it's God breathed. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Thank God it's profitable. It's worth something. Well, what profit does it bring us? And it's profitable for doctrine. That means teaching. We should establish our doctrine from what the Bible says, not from what we think. Second, it says it's profitable for reproof. The word reproof means evidence. The word of God should be our evidence in life. It says it's profitable for correction. The word correction means to set in order. God uses the word of God to set things in order. God doesn't prove things to us through circumstance. He proves things to us through his word. He doesn't set things in order through circumstance. He sets things in order through his word. And finally, the last one it says it's profitable for, the last of the four things, is it says it's profitable for instruction. This word instruction is also the word translated chasten or chastening in Hebrews chapter 12. So what is, Jesus, what is the Bible telling us? It's telling us God disciplines only in spirit and he uses only his word to discipline you. That's why Paul is talking about the discipline of the Lord when he's encouraging him to get back in the race. He's saying, I know this letter is tough for you. I know I've stepped over all, uh, stepped on everything that you've turned away from and turned back to as far as Judaism is concerned. Everything that you sh- held is, as um, valuable and important. I know I've stepped all over it. I know I've stepped all over you for turning away. I understand how tough this is for you to hear. But don't despise the chastening of the Lord. Don't despise the discipline of God. God uses his word to teach you. God uses his word to discipline you. Now, there's something else. Back to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, I didn't finish that. Verse 16. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Notice it doesn't take circumstances to perfect you. It's only the word that's necessary to bring you into perfection. Amen. Now back to Hebrews chapter 12. If he's saying it's the word that brings discipline. If it's the word that corrects us then what should we think about the chastening of the Lord? Folks, there's something else you need to understand about discipline. We we operate uh, naturally in a different way than God operates spiritually because very often for us, discipline and consequence are the same things. We tell our kids, if you do this, then you'll get a spanking. So our discipline is the consequence itself. The instruction, we're trying to keep them out of the spanking, so we give them instruction. But if they don't, follow the instruction, if they don't give heed to the instruction, then the discipline is the correction. The discipline is the consequence. Not so with God. Because God has no evil consequence. God can't do evil. He can't do anything harmful. It's contrary to his nature. It's contrary to his character. He can't do it. If God's going to bring something harmful against somebody, where's he going to get it? Where's he going to get it from? God's good and he's only good. All he's got is good. What's he going to do? Punish you with good? So as far as God is concerned, or the discipline of the Lord is concerned, discipline and consequence are not the same thing. God's discipline is when we get off track to instruct us with his word to try to bring us back on track so that we avoid the consequence. Do you understand that? 
So this idea that God does things and brings terrible things into your life to try to teach you something, nothing could be more unscriptural. That's saying God's the father of the flesh, trying to discipline us in our flesh. But that doesn't even fit. God would have to be the God of circumstance. And he's not. If we assume that God is the God of circumstance, then that means everything that happens in life, God's behind. Well, that can't be right. God can't be behind sickness. He can't be behind disease. But how much of the church world thinks that? If there's a tornado, if there's a hurricane, if there's some kind of earthquake or something like that, how many Christians are standing up saying that's the judgment of God? Well, that's an idiot talking. Nothing could be more unscriptural. Nothing could be further from the truth. God's not causing circumstances in this world. The Bible says Satan is the God of this world. Do you understand what I'm saying? Forgive me if I'm belaboring this point. I, I assume you get this already. But this is such a foreign concept to most of the church world. Therefore, when he talks about the discipline of the Lord, he's saying, I know this is tough for you to hear, but I'm just trying to get you back on track so you don't suffer the consequence of being off track. So he says, again in verse 5, he said, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. In other words, don't feel condemned because I'm having to straighten you out. Why? Because he goes on to say, verse 6, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. In other words, God's only doing this. God's only giving me these things to say to you because he loves you. He wants you to get back on track. He doesn't want to inform you that you've missed it and he's through with you for life. No, he wants to inform you that he's still got a plan for you. So he wants you to get back on track. You know, there's an interesting thing. Because a lot of times we're tougher on ourselves than uh, than God ever is. We're a lot of times tougher than other people are. And sometimes we're tougher on ourselves than the devil is. Long past when forgiveness is given, we're still beating ourselves up about what we did wrong. Right? And the devil just, he just climbs on at that point. It's kind of like, yeah, go, buddy. He's not even the one doing it. It's us that does it to ourselves. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, don't feel bad because I'm having to discipline you. Don't feel bad because the Holy Ghost told me to tell you these things to straighten you out. He loves you, and that's why he wants you to straighten things out. Don't let it make you a failure. Don't let your failures make you a failure, even in your own thinking. Verse 7, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. In other words, this is a part of growing up. It's not the end of anything. It's not the end of God's plan for you. It's a part of growing up. If you endure chastening, in other words, if you accept the discipline of the Lord, God will deal with you like an adult son. Well, I want that, don't you? I don't want God dealing with me like I'm a baby. I want to grow up. I want to be useful in the things of God. I want him to deal with me uh, face to face, man to man, so to speak. Don't you? I know there are things that we can, uh, certainly we all understand that there are things that we can share and, and, uh, and experience with our adult children that we can't when they're young. That's great when our kids are young. I mean, there's, it's, it's great at every age, I guess. But when they're old, we can partner with them in stuff. We can work together with them in things. That's what God wants for you and me. If you're endure chastening, then God deals with you as sons, adult sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? In other words, show me a son that God won't discipline. That's the point Paul's making. Don't get condemned because you're having to be disciplined here because God's trying to bring you back in, on, in the middle of his plan and his purpose. God does that with all of his children. But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. In other words, it should be proof to you that God loves you and that you are a child of God because he is disciplining you. Now, that's a concept that we don't usually think about. We don't use it as an encouragement. We usually use it as a, oh, man, we messed up so bad. Woe is me. Right? 
Furthermore, again, back to verse 9, furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? Now, let me tell you something about uh, about natural parents. And I, I, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I guarantee every person in here, every parent here can can remember sometime that they messed up when they disciplined their kids. Right? We either disciplined in anger or maybe we disciplined when we shouldn't have or we did it in the wrong way or something. We messed up. Every one of us, every parent that's ever lived, every natural human parent has messed up in some way or another. And do you know why we messed up? Because we were left to discipline according to what we thought was right. And we're not always right. We don't have that problem with God. He's always right. He doesn't discipline us according to his pleasure like we natural parents do. Pleasure doesn't mean what we enjoy. It means what we determine or think is right. That's not the issue with God. God deals with us not according to what he, even what he thinks is right. He deals with us according to what works best for us. What brings us profit. But he for our own profit, verse 10, notice this, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, folks, here's another proof that God doesn't deal with you. He doesn't discipline you as far as circumstance are concerned or fleshly things are concerned because there is no punishment of the flesh that makes you a partaker of holiness. You don't become holy because you get cancer. You don't become holy because you lose your job or lose your business or whatever. You don't become holy because people speak against you or, or give you a hard time on the job or whatever it is. There's no natural thing that makes you holiness, that makes you a partaker of holiness. There is no natural situation. There is no natural circumstance. There is no fleshly event that makes you a partaker of holiness. None. So he can't be disciplining us in the flesh. He's got to be disciplining us in the spirit. Because when he brings us back on track, gets us out of no man's land out there where we may have wandered off to, back on track into his perfect will, then we become partakers of holiness. See what he's saying? Verse 11, now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous but grievous. It's not fun, but it's necessary. Nevertheless... Afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Let me take a few minutes and talk about this. Because remember I said that discipline and consequence are not the same thing? Um, That might be an overview. We might consider that to be an overview. Now let's take it apart piece by piece and, and talk about what discipline does and how it works. Not every discipline that God exercises through his word is received you know as well as i do that a lot of people ignore the discipline of the word and ignore the the correction of the holy ghost and and go about their business and do their own thing right so there's only one way that discipline is ever going to benefit somebody now the purpose of discipline the purpose of god bringing discipline is for our good but whether or not it provides good for us depends on the individual not god Because God won't force you to do anything. God won't say it's this way or else. Ever. That's not the way he works. He says it's this way or there's a consequence. Don't go for the consequence. Because many times that consequence is out in the devil's territory where he will bring tragedy into your life. He will affect things as far as circumstances are concerned. But that's not God that does it. He says, walk in my perfect will, walk in my protection, walk according to my, my plan and purpose for your life, and stay out of that fringe area where the devil can, can use you as a target. Right? So he's trying to keep us in the middle of his will. He's trying to keep us on track so that we avoid all the pain and the heartache of life that happens. Now, that doesn't mean everything. The devil's still going to attack us. The devil's still going to bring difficulty against us. But a whole lot less when you're in the will of God is when you're out there in his territory. Do you understand what I mean by that? But that means it has to be received. That means discipline, the correction of the Lord, the word of God, and the instruction that it brings us has to be received. In other words, if I'm going to be disciplined, I'm going to have to accept that. And step number one to accepting the discipline of the Lord is you've got to admit you were wrong. You know how hard that is for most Christians? But that is step number one. 
If I'm going to be disciplined for my good, if I'm going to grow, I'm going to have to admit I'm wrong. Now, I could be wrong for any number of reasons. I could be wrong honestly. I could honestly be wrong because I didn't know. I could be wrong because I believed what somebody else influenced me to believe. I could be wrong for any number of reasons. But no matter what, if I'm going to accept the discipline of the Lord and grow thereby and become a partaker of holiness and get back in the perfect will of God and allow myself to be used of God again, get back in the race, in other words, I'm going to have to admit I was wrong. Step number one. Step number two is I'm going to have to figure out how did I get wrong? Who did I listen to? What did I allow to happen in my life? Maybe it was because I let up on my Bible reading. I let up on my fellowship with God. I got slowly pulled off into something that I shouldn't have been involved in. Wasn't because I intended to get there, never planned to go there, never planned to do that. Gee whiz, how'd this happen? So you're going to have to identify how did I get off track? And then you're going to have to make a decision. Step number three is you're going to have to make a decision to guard from getting off track in that way again. In other words, we're talking about repentance. We've just broken down repentance into three different steps, but that's all just repentance to accept I was wrong. Here's where I made a mistake. I'm not going to do that again. Without repentance, there is no fellowship with God. Now, having said that, if you do repent, there is a time period involved in restoration. That's true naturally and it's true with your fellowship with God. Now, before you think that I said something I didn't say, let me explain. When you ask God for forgiveness, when you recognize you were wrong and you ask God for forgiveness, you accept his discipline, whatever the case is, whether you see it first or he has to discipline you to show you, whatever the case, once you ask for forgiveness, God gives it to you instantly. But you're not instantly going to feel like you're back in fellowship with God. You're not going to instantly, well, let me say this. It's a mature believer who is able to put aside everything else and run back in and say, oh, I'm so glad I'm back. Most people, through the process of their maturing, their spiritual maturity, go through this, Lord, I'm so sorry. And God's in heaven saying, yeah, I know, I've forgiven you for that. Yeah, but Lord, I'm, I'm really just so sorry. Yeah, yeah, I know, we covered that. Yeah, but Lord, I really hope you can use me again. Don't worry, I will. I just wish I could feel like you used me again. And there's this process. There's this, this, this process that we go through, whether it's feelings, whether it's emotions, whether whatever you want to call it. I don't care. It didn't matter to me what label you put on it. Before we come back to the place where we realize I am forgiven, bless God, this is behind me, it's over, now I'm back where I was before. Now, That's true with us spiritually, not because it's necessary on God's end, but because it's the way we deal with God. It's a part of our spiritual growth. But how much more true is that when we've wronged somebody here on the earth? You can get forgiveness from somebody that you did wrong, but it takes a while to reestablish that trust. It takes a while to come back into that place where we know, okay, that was a one-time mistake. That'll never happen again. I can trust this person just as completely as I could before, right? The same thing is true naturally as it is spiritually. Not because it's necessary, absolutely, or in every case, but because that's the way we interact with one another. It's the way we interact with God. But it still comes down to repentance. It comes down to repentance and then a restoration of fellowship. John wrote, my little children, I write these things to you that you may have fellowship one with another and that your joy may be full. There is only one place that there is fullness of joy, and that is when you are in complete and total fellowship with God. It's the only way. That's why repentance, 1 John 1, 9, is such an important thing. Not because we should live it every day, not because we should get up every day and say, Lord, I confess my sins. I don't know what I did wrong, but just in case I messed up, I'm confessing my sins. Now, that's crazy. But when we do know that we've made a mistake, to acknowledge that mistake and confess it, so that we can get back in fellowship with God, so that our joy can be restored, is of utmost importance. If we don't do that, if we miss that first step, then we're never admitting that we were wrong. We're ignoring that we were wrong, and there will come a time where the discipline of the Lord will be necessary for you and I to look ourselves in the mirror and say, 
I was wrong. Honestly, folks, I think that's one of the best things that we can do as Christians is learn to say that we were wrong. Because if you can't be honest and say to God, yeah, I was wrong. I'm sorry, Father. I was wrong. If you can't do that with God, how are we going to be able to do that with one another? And that's going to be a necessary thing in human relationships. So admitting you're wrong is a really important thing. It's the key for discipline, the discipline of the Lord, profiting you. Now, some people go to extremes. There's no question about that. Some people go to extremes. But I'm not going to take the truth of the word and not live by it because some people go to extremes. Paul goes even further. Uh, We won't talk about it tonight. But Paul goes further in this chapter and talks about the only thing that can keep you out of the race once you're forgiven is you feeling so guilty that you take yourself out. In other words, you live a lifestyle of guilt so that you never get off the bench and back into the game. That's the only thing that can keep God from using you. So some people are going to go to that extreme. He warns against it. But some people are going to go to that extremes. Well, let's pray for them and help them and hope they grow out of it. But I'm not going to miss the truth of the word because somebody's going to go to an extreme. See my point? Okay, let's finish this up. Verse 11. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. It's a tough thing to admit you're wrong. It's a tough thing to own up to what we've done. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Now, notice that. Folks, again, there is no natural, circumstantial, human, fleshly event that can bring you to righteousness. He's got to be talking about spiritual things. He's got to be talking about the discipline of the Lord through the word. It can't be through natural things because nothing naturally brings you to righteousness. Afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. In other words, righteousness is restored. And again, I've got to take just a minute and explain the difference. There's a difference between relationship and fellowship. Your relationship of righteousness is never ended even when you sin. Your fellowship, the practice of your righteousness with God is broken when we sin. It's just like in marriage. If I mess up and do something to offend my wife, it doesn't break my marriage relationship. It may break our fellowship until we fix it. But we're still married. Well, you're still saved. You're still a child of God even when you sin. But that fellowship is broken. And that fellowship can't be restored unless you accept the discipline of the Lord and repent and do those three steps that we were talking about. Okay? We together on that? Again, that should be Christianity 101, but a lot of Christians don't seem to get that. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. In other words, unto them that accept the discipline of the Lord. It's tough. It's like a, it's like a real hard workout. You feel spent when it's done, but it's worthwhile. Wherefore, verse 12, wherefore lift up the hands which hang down in the feeble knees and make straight the paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but rather let it be healed. What in the world is he talking about? Folks, it's so simple. He's saying, the hands that used to be raised when you guys were strong and you guys back in Hebrews chapter 10, verse what, verse 32, somewhere around there, where he was talking about consider the former days when you endured such a great fight of afflictions and held strong. Your hands used to be up. You used to live a life of praise no matter what happened, no matter what pressure came against you. You used to be somebody where the word just came out of. Anytime pressure was applied to you in any way, the word would come out. You were praising God. You were living a life of praise and thanksgiving because you were trusting him for your answer. Why are your hands hanging down now? Because you've messed up. Because you've left Christianity and gone back into Judaism. Or at least been influenced by the people telling you you should. You've lost the joy of your Christianity. So lift back those hands. Get back in the game. Don't keep your hands down anymore. Get back to that lifestyle of praise and worship and, and, and applying the word in every area no matter what the situation is. Don't run away from trouble and think, oh, God's against me. Realize the devil's trying to turn you away and, and uh, overcome him with the word. And the feeble knees. What is the feeble knees? Well, those knees didn't used to be feeble. 
Those knees used to be strong because they were being exercised according to the word. They were being exercised in the middle of adversity. Those knees used to be strong. They may be feeble now because, you, uh, because you've messed up, because you've had failures in your life. But don't let them stay that way. Lift your hands back up and strengthen yourself in the word and get back in the game. That's what he's saying. Then the next thing he said, and make straight paths for your feet. In other words, get back on track. Get back on track. I don't know where you've been, but the race is over here. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but rather let it be healed. What's he talking about? He's talking about the same thing in the previous verse. You used to be strong, then you got weak. You used to be strong, healthy. Now you look lame. Well, lame people don't run races too well, do they? He's talking about the same thing. Get back in the game. If you are hurt, if you are injured, if the, if the things that you've done have created an injury, a spiritual injury to you, then get back in there through the word and let it be healed and get back up. In other words, the theme of the first half of the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 12 of Hebrews and, and even further into the chapter, things that we didn't cover tonight, is forget your mistakes and run your race. And that's why he talks about the discipline of the Lord. Because God's trying to get you back on track. He's not trying to, to condemn you for getting off track. He's trying to get you back on track. Everything that Paul has said about the, the superiority of Christianity over, over the high priest, about the, the superiority of uh, Jesus over Abraham, over the superiority of Jesus over Moses, over the superiority of, of Jesus over the law, the superiority of Jesus uh, over everything. He, he summarizes it by saying, I've disciplined you this way. I've spoken harshly to you by the Holy Ghost because God loves you enough to get you back on track. So quit letting yourself sit on the sidelines and get back in there and run your race. Thank God for the discipline of the Lord. Of course, it's easier to say that when he's not in the process of disciplining you. But even when he is, it's for your good. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your patience and your mercy when we do miss it. Thank you, Father, for your love, for your concern for us. Thank you, Father, that you don't hold anything against us. Thank you that we can't mess up enough for you not to use us. Thank you that our mistakes don't keep you from having a plan for our lives. Thank you that making, having a failure in our life doesn't make us a failure. But you always restore. Even as you turn David into a better king, after he made his mistakes with murder and adultery. Make us better, even though we failed too. Lord, let us be like those mature sons that you deal with, that accept your discipline through the word of God to make correction, to bring instruction, to chasten us so that we walk in your ways, so that we're always pliable, teachable, easily formed, and therefore easily conformed to the image of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that Jesus submitted himself to your will, and we can look to him as our example that we may do the same thing. Thank you, Father, that no matter what failures we've had in the past, you don't count them against us, you don't hold them against us, but instead, you'll use those as a foundation to make us even stronger. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, thank you for being with us.